This is Cam Rowdy, a USH med student. Got quite a group with me today. We're pretty excited about this. How about if we start with introductions? And uh, we've got a special guest today, my little brother. We'll, we'll introduce him in a moment. So um, who's starting? Robert, why don't you do the honors? I can start it off. Uh, my name is Robert Kaufman. I am a third year medical student at uh, Rocky Vista University, College of Osteopathic Medicine. And I am Dr. Roundy's uh, student for this month. Hello, I am Nick Afshari. I'm also another student at Rocky Vista University. And I'm also shot, or not shot, rotating with Dr. <laughs> Roundy. Which Dr. Roundy, because we should probably do a, another introduction for the other Dr. Roundy in the crowd. Special guest. Special <laughs> guest. Uh, Dr. Shad Roundy, do you want to introduce yourself? I'm Shad Roundy, Kent's little brother. <laughs> and also younger brother and uh he introduces me as doctor i am not an expert in any field that we're going to discuss today i'm sure but i do practice oral and maxillofacial surgery in indiana and the reason we pulled you in uh, well how about if we come to that in just a second let's talk about how we pick this podcast would that be okay yeah who, who wants to tackle that Nick, do you want to take the reins? Sure. So anesthesia is something I'm very interested in. And I always found it very interesting that some cases report amnesia, uh, post-surgical amnesia. And it's just very fascinating because through anesthesia, you take away the person's conscious and ability to retain memory and create memory. And afterwards, uh, some people might have an effect of that longer, even though they're not even under anesthesia. So, so one of the things I thought was really funny as we we're reading through this, somebody commented, that is the goal of anesthesia. You don't <laughs> want people to remember yeah. the event. So, so you guys said essentially we, we're both interested in going into anesthesia. And as a result, we would like to do something with anesthesia. And I think you mentioned the, the amnesia associated with anesthesia. And I said, hey, maybe we can overlap it with some other event in psychiatry. And I said something along the lines of maybe there are, is an association between this and dissociative fugue. And oddly enough, there are case reports out there of this, right? We thought that was very interesting. So I mentioned to, uh, and, and I know Dr. Roundy is Shad, and for clarity of the podcast, uh, maybe call me Kent and him Shad, if that works for you, Dr. Roundy. Sure. <laughs> it makes me laugh. I don't ever ask anybody to call me doctor, so it works just fine. <laughs> Sounds good to me. So so I had texted Chad and said something along the lines of, I think we're going to do a podcast on um, amnesia associated with anesthesia and try and see what correlates that might have to psychiatry. And you laughed and said, oh, yeah. Uh, do you want to pick the story up from here, Shad? Uh, I don't have any idea what I laughed and said, but I can tell you that I don't think I would have half the job I have now if people didn't pay me to give them amnesia. They want that and they expect that in a lot of the surgeries that we do. I, I think you also mentioned that when you have a, a patient that comes in, they don't remember not just at the point you give the anesthesia, anesthetic anesthesia sorry mm -hmm. um but but they will forget both before and after 
Yeah, it's not uncommon. So you guys are probably going to tackle this, but um, there are moments before the anesthetic where they can't seem to remember a whole lot going on. We call that retrograde amnesia. And there are moments where after I've started the anesthetic, of course, they can't remember. And sometimes those moments can be uh, a little short or, or a little long on either side of that. It's not uncommon for for me to have a patient who will come back on a follow-up visit and they'll say, man, that was great. I was sitting in my car and then I don't remember anything until I was back home in my house. And <laughs> that is perfect. I think that it, it couldn't go much better than that. So I do get, uh, I do get a lot of amnesia, anterograde amnesia, and I do get uh, a fair amount of retrograde, though I, I will, I'm quick to say it's, it's short-term retrograde amnesia. And, and I think that's mostly what we read, and we're going to look at some of the exceptions of that as we go through this, I think. Um, you, you two both are interested in going into anesthesiology at this point. And um, in terms of, of amnesia, the shelf exam has a lot of amnesia on it, more than I ever realized. Yeah. Tell me about amnesia, amnesia on, this, on the shelf exam. So, um, yeah, there's different questions that they can ask. And uh, I feel like the shelf comes from the DSM. I think we're at five TR now. Uh, dealing with dissociative amnesia. And they'll ask questions where they describe events such as a dissociative fugue, which is uh, purposeful. Um, and we'll define this better later. But uh, where they don't really know who they are. They don't remember autobiographical information. And uh, they're doing, you know, uh, cognitive activities that they're interacting, but they don't remember who they are. And so you need to be able to recognize that and that that goes with dissociative amnesia. You need to be able to know about um, ECT, which is a treatment for uh, catatonia and other major depressive uh, that are not um, reacting to treatment, you'll actually get retrograde amnesia. Okay, so hold on. I, I want to just make sure I clarify that. So first of all, currently in the DSMTR, the diagnosis of dissociative fugue is part of the DID diagnosis, right? It's a specifier to DID. Correct. Yes. And in terms of being able to differentiate this from other conditions, you need to know that catatonia or maybe uh, major depressive disorder, when treated with ECT, you would get some sort of memory impairment Correct. after that. And, and did it say what kind of memory impairment that is on your shelf prep work? It said it was retrograde. Amnesia. Retrograde amnesia. So Correct. from the induced seizure. Okay. Yeah. And then the next thing that comes up quite often is uh, seizure disorders themselves, right? So there's right. this cognitive change. Mm -hmm. If you ask people after a seizure, they do not remember having the seizure, right? right? So what what are the key parts of being able to know the difference between a seizure disorder and dissociative amnesia? And so the, to know the difference between those two is to understand dissociative fugue in that uh, in seizure disorder, the movements and what they're doing is not purposeful. There's not a complex uh, function they're trying to, to do or remember where in dissociative amnesia with dissociative fugue, it is purposeful. So 
so a classic example of dissociative fugues, uh, I'll make one up, uh, 40-year-old male shows up at emergency room saying, I don't know who I am. I woke up four hours ago, and here I am. I don't know where I came from. I don't know what I'm, who, who I am. But, uh, like, how do you go to the bathroom? How do you get a drink? How do you find food? How do you use money? All of those things seem to be preserved in dissociative fugue, right? Correct. So that's why they talk about that being an autobiographical amnesia. And then with um, a, a post-ictal stage, that confusion about what has happened before, mm -hmm. you might be purposeful at that time, but you're confused about immediately before and in the immediately before during the seizure, you might see somebody who has complex partial activity at the most, but they're not really engaged, right? They're, yeah. they're, they're, they might be buttoning up somebody's shirt, they might mm -hmm. be driving to Kmart, whatever the case is, but if you talk to that person, they're not able to cognitive, cognitively engage. Somebody right. that's having a dissociative fugue would be able to cognitively engage, just not tell you about their autobiographical history. Yes. Okay, what's the next one? You wanna talk about Korsakov. Uh, <clears throat> so Korsakov yes. is an interesting syndrome and it's when someone lacks thiamine and what ends up happening is it's usually associated with people who drink a lot of alcohol and when that happens uh, the thiamine levels are going to be low to the point where uh, you get these symptoms of uh, three things it's uh ophthalmalgia i believe it's eye pain uh you get ataxia is it for, for, oh, sorry. This plegia, is right? Plegia, so movement. So there's plegia. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, you get ataxia as well as uh, confusion. And when that worsens enough, it enters into another realm called Kors Korsakoff syndrome. So this is where patients have uh, confabulations, which is where uh, they make up things as they go and or as they talk about things and make up facts. And they also have amnesia caused by this. So it's a very interesting uh, syndrome where the lack of thiamine can progress to this. I think there's, uh, sometimes the shelf exam says something along the lines of before you restore glucose, make sure you put thiamine in, right? Something along those. Correct. Do any of the shelf exam questions still mention that? I don't know about the order, but they do ask what what's the next thing you do? Yeah. And then, thiamine thiamine usually. Thiamine and that's usually the answer. typically in the setting of somebody who's drinking alcohol, right? Yes. Uh, benzodiazepines, another place where we see some change in cognition or memory, amnesia, I should say, because yeah. we're not talking about memory here, we're talking about amnesia. Mm -hmm. Tell me what's up with these. So benzodiazepine, the mechanism of action here is to serve as uh, an agonist for the GABA-A receptor. And this amnesia is typically caused by uh, the receptors on the hippocampus being activated or memory consolidation is located. And when you have these receptors of GABA being activated and us being reminded that GABA-A is a CNS depressant, so it's gonna basically loosen the function or decrease the function of the hippocampus to make memories. So usually uh, when you're prescribed benzodiazepines, they tell you that you know not to drive. Also, you might have memory issues, uh, where you might forget or yeah, forget things and stuff like that. So, anterograde amnesia is usually associated with benzodiazepines. Now, interestingly enough, some of the articles we looked at included use of midazolam as a 
I, I think maybe an induction agent. I'm not very good at my anesthesia, right? But it, it's never used alone as an anesthetic agent, but we do see it used, I think, standalone maybe in some procedures like colonoscopy, things, a few things along those lines. Am I on the right track there, anybody? For sure. That we frequently will use uh, midazolam as, as an agent that uh, it does produce a lot of amnesia. Now, interestingly, to add on to the previous comments, I've had to, because of drug shortages, use lots of different benzodiazepines in the clinic to try and get that sort of amnestic effect. And they are not all created equally when it comes to amnesia. So something like Valium is not very good at creating that amnestic effect, where something like um, Triazolam, the tablet, Halcyon, also called Halcyon, it's pretty darn good at it. Uh, Midazolam is excellent at it. And that's why I would venture to guess it's widely, far and away, the most commonly used uh, first drug given by most anesthesiologists, most oral surgeons, most gastroenterologists, people who are routinely doing sedations and MAC anesthesia and general anesthetics use midazolam a lot. It's, it's interesting because I think I've made a similar comment, Shad, with regards to treatment of catatonia, that all benzodiazepines don't seem to be equal and that Ativan or lorazepam seems to have some uh, better, better Kind of outcome and and i don't know if data supports any of that but but that's where it seems to work sounds like I, you have similar experiences I, with the i have <laughs> i've had to use i've had to use diet diazepam ativan um versed i've tried clonidine some of the well that's not a benzodiazepine that's an alpha 2 agonist yeah no, I'm talking about clonidine oh, to try. Wow. So the alpha-2 agonist, um, which is in the anesthesia world, it seems to me it's not really used very much. They've, they've gone away from that in, in favor of something that's uh, it's called dexmedetomidine. So, which also now has an FDA approval for treatment of agitation in, in the psychiatry. Yeah. yeah. I saw that. It's pretty cool. Say that. Dexmedetomidine? Is that how you say it? Dexmedetomidine is how I've always heard it said and how I've said it. In the old days, we used to call it Presidex, which was the brand name when it first came out. Presidex, that sounds familiar. Um, so one of the challenges we had, I think, with amnesia, Shad talked about retrograde amnesia with his patients uh, being primarily the issue and then amnesia during the expected period of time of treatment with an anesthetic agent. One of the challenges I think we had was all of the different ways that amnesia is talked about. Let's talk about the different kinds of amnesia just to at least have a conversation that hopefully the three of us and perhaps even the other Dr. Roundy can follow. Let's <laughs> try. So retrograde great, great amnesia, who's starting with that? So retrograde amnesia is defined as the loss of, or loss of the ability to recall events that happened just before the event that caused your amnesia. So as Dr. Roundy, or sorry, Shad Roundy was uh, saying, his patients uh, wouldn't remember anything leading up to it. And that's a perfect example of retrograde amnesia. So things that happened before. 
And interesting that anterograde is the exact opposite. So it's the inability to, inability to remember new information since amnesia. So you can still recall information before the event of coming to it, but you cannot recall information that happened after. What about uh, transient global amnesia? What is that? Transient global amnesia is defined as a temporary form of amnesia that tends to resolve within 24 hours. It occurs often in middle-aged and older adults and rarely recurs. Do we know why transient global amnesia happens? Because this is considered um, biologically driven, right? As opposed to some of the other, what, what we would call psychologically driven uh, amnesias. Any, any sense on that? I never found that as I was reading. Uh, there are a couple of contributing factors and theories associated with it. Some of them are vascular causes. Uh, they might be, there could be a temporary disruption of blood flow in the brain and the slack of oxygen in some affected areas could result in some memory. Um, so maybe like a stroke then? A stroke, yeah. Interesting. I, and I think we have some other stuff on vascular actions a little later on. Uh, what about, uh, I thought this was interesting. Uh, Shad, yeah. question for you. How much do you remember of your life as a one-year-old? Would you say maybe I remember <laughs> more of it or you remember more of that? I would say you remember more of my life as a one-year-old. <laughs> I, I remember when you came home from the, the hospital and, and our mother set us down and said, we'd like to tell you about Shad. He's very special. And we we're like, oh, well, why can't I be special? <laughs> um, and, and I don't remember any of this. So. <laughs> so we have a name for that, actually. And I thought this was really fascinating. It's called infantile amnesia, or you can call it childhood amnesia. And it's always interesting because with this, you know, sometimes you get memories of when you're young, but you can't recall memories of when you're a toddler, super young. And it's just, it's a very interesting term. And I'm happy that they named it something because it's something we can all relate to, where we can't really recall things that happened in our early childhood. So just to spew the definition here, it's basically when adults can't recollect early childhood memories. This is caused or the theory to this is due to the brain still developing and unable to consolidate memories. The autobiographical uh, memories or sorry, amnesia, we've talked about just a little bit already. This is where people lose the ability to remember who they were, the things about them from the past. Um, let's talk about, um, I think there, there are a few other terms that come up. So we've talked a little bit about dissociative amnesia, how dissociative fugue is a version of that. Within dissociative amnesia, you might have a localized event, or you might have a selective period of time. For example, somebody who has maybe sexually abused might block that part of their, might not be able to recall that part of their life, right? Um, these things appear to be associated with stress, abuse. We see depression show up in this. I think um, one of the challenges I saw with the data was this is largely case report kinds of things. And um, even one of the fairly recent papers we were looking at referenced a paper from 1956 as like some of the best data we have on this seeming to show up in people who are about to be deployed to the front again, right? That had been there already. So, um, 
Where do we want to go next? Uh, do we want to go to memory next? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Tell tell me about memory. You you put in this bullet point. I think want to just remind us of something here, Nick. Yeah. So memory is very interesting, and you know, with uh, we have short term memory that can get consolidated into uh, long term memory, and this occurs in the hippocampus. And just going off of some definitions with long term memory. Uh, we have some uh, definitions of explicit memory, which is basically consisting of semantic memory and episodic. So episodic memory is events and experiences and semantic memory is just general knowledge. This is kind of like your MCAT review at some point where you have to know all this. And now for implicit memory, that's where you get your procedural uh, skills such as uh, riding a bike. And you can get a really good understanding of this if you're interested in the previous podcast that was mentioned, which was... I think we did more actually on that Anki. We did an Anki podcast in long-term potentiation. Uh, spaced repetition is a way for medical students to have better uh, learning and retention of memory. So you can see more of that in there for sure. I want to I back up for just a second. Two other places where you see amnesia. One is hypnosis. That's quite often viewed as a form of amnesia where you wouldn't necessarily remember what happens while you're under the effect of hypnosis. And then unconsciousness would be another form. We wouldn't refer to that as a dementia or a loss of uh, uh, progressive memory loss of any sort. We would also refer to that as, as probably an amnesia. But I don't think those things showed up the way some of the other things did that we talked about. All right, with that, let's talk about the history of anesthesia. So this was pretty interesting. Uh, some of the ancient civilizations, as the Egyptians, Greeks, and Chinese, used a, a lot of things for anesthesia, basically to uh, induce a state of unconsciousness to alleviate pain during medical procedures. And some of them, uh, examples of this were opium, alcohol, and herbal mixtures that were used. So it's it's kind of funny how this you know was happening years ago. Yeah, they were like. I don't want to remember this. <laughs> I need something that's going to make me not remember what you're going to do to me. Now, this this is um, until about the 19th century. In the 19th century, we have nitrous oxide and ether. These are both gases. And then there's this interesting story. I think, uh, I don't remember who it was. It was either, it seems like Nick was telling me about modern anesthesia. Somebody was unhappy with... Um, with how things were, and so they they went to the drawing board, and now we have the fluorine gas or the the fluorines. Is that did, did yes. I hear that story right? Correct. That is the that is the fluorine gases. That's what we use in OR in, in inhalational anesthetic techniques. You'll have isofluorine, desfluorine, sevofluorine. And and it seemed like somebody was telling me that they were unhappy with that the people that are out there are unhappy with the current options. And so in the 19th century, we have these two gases, but then somebody went further. Or maybe I have it backwards. Maybe somebody in the 19th century decided we need to have something better and found yeah. the inhaled anesthetics, the, the ether and the, uh, the nitrous oxide. Yeah, so a young Boston dentist, Dr. Morton, uh, was searching for a better agent that was used by many dentists back then. And that agent was nitrous oxide. Uh, so him, Dr. Morton, and a renowned surgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital, Dr. John Collins Warren, uh, they made history on October 16th, 
1846, with the first successful surgical procedure performed with anesthesia. So they uh, single-handedly proved to the world that ether gas is, uh, when inhaled at a proper dose, is provided a safe and effective anesthesia. So that was a huge turning point in the world of anesthesia. And when was that? That was in 1846, October 16th. Because I clearly lost where I was supposed to be on the flow here. Because I put some stuff in the wrong spot, to be honest. Um, yeah. Now, there you have another part here, not just about the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Chinese using various substances, but a little further along, you have, uh, even in Homer's Odyssey, this uh, reference to Galanthus Nivalis. Yeah, so... When I was looking up the history and trying to learn more about amnesia and the writings of it, uh, there's actually a paper that um, looked at back in Homer's Odyssey uh, when Odysseus was given this molly flower to avoid amnesia. Um, they described it and they actually, today's scientists believe that it was Galanthus nivalis, which is a plant that contains galanthamine, which is an acetylcholine esterase uh, inhibitor. And uh, I thought that was just super interesting to add here because that is a drug that we use in dementia. Interesting. You also have, I think this is probably you then, Robert, that has this comment about Korsakoff, not the condition, but the scientist. Mm -hmm. So Korsakoff, uh, between 1887 and the 1900s, uh, a stirred widespread interest in amnesic disorders. Uh, and he's uh, developed stands in marked contrast to uh, the sparse li literature on memory disorders that were published before. So him looking into what we know now as the Korsakoff syndrome kind of sparked all these other scientists to be like, yep, what is an amnesic, dis amnesic disorder? Where and do they come from? Where do they come from? How are they happening? Where in the what is going on uh, in the brain that is making us not remember. So when we do have a, a full complement of anesthetics, there are a number that are primarily used now. They're maybe not changed a lot for quite a while. Um, I think ketamine maybe came in in the last 20 years to be mm -hmm. used a little bit more in settings along these lines. But generally speaking, there are not a lot of changes to the anesthesia world in terms of medications. So how do the anesthetics work? So that's a good question. So uh, anesthetics work. So a good one uh, that's popular or that's used in today, today's medicine is propofol. So uh, this general anesthetic is used and it's an agonist of a receptor called GABA-A, which we previously mentioned with the benzodiazepines. Uh, specifically, for those who are interested in the biochemistry of this, this is an ionotropic receptor in ligand-gated ion channel, and its endogenous ligand is gamma-aminobutric acid, so GABA. So, as we previously mentioned, it's the uh, CNS depressant, and when these receptors that are located in the hippocampus are activated, this is responsible for amnesia and kind of inducing this unconscious state. I think we read something about the importance of the 2B subunit as well. Does that sound familiar? So I think the GABA has, what, four or five different subunits, um, and the 2B subunit seemed to be the one that 
that was important in the switch. So, so I don't, I don't know how important this is with what we're doing, but the, the idea that we kind of wanted to think about was if we're going to talk about dissociative fugue, if we're going to talk about the different kinds of amnesias, one of the directions we went was to try and look at what might the bi biology be that maybe ties all of these things together. And, and I want to take one step back if I can. One of the things that surprised me was that over and over, we saw this comment about if somebody had any type of amnesia in the past, it seemed like those same people were more likely to have another event, right? It, it it doesn't seem like you're one and done with this. So maybe there's some sort of genetic predisposition for this. And so one of the things we looked at uh, in addition to what, just trying to figure out the language of this, right, was this glutamate activity, which seems to be what happens with at least some of the anesthetics, right? Mm -hmm. And and perhaps one article made the case that there's something about uh, NMDA receptor calmodulin-dependent uh, protein kinase 2-alpha, and this is something that still is changes some ratios with glutamate A, uh, glutamate um, NMDA 2A receptor, 2A subunit, and the 2B subunit. So there's a lot of stuff here that's still being looked at. It's not clear yet how important that is, but some sort of ratio in those may, may allow this switch to long-term potentiation, which Again, the, the difference between memory, amnesia, and dementia, these things are all seem to have some level of interplay. Um, there was another interesting article that I looked at that, that talked about how there are some differences in the anesthetics, though. For example, um, halothane is GABA, but nitrous oxide is non-GABA, and then isofluorane and maybe all of the other fluoranes are, are both. And yet they all have theta slowing. So there were some studies done with the fear conditioning paradigm with rats where they were able to demonstrate that um, all of these, when you start changing the theta rhythm of the hypothalamus, I'm sorry, of the um, hippocampus, then you you get the amnesia is kind of the paradigm they set up and what they find. So, so I think there's a lot of things that we're still trying to understand about how, how the amnesia works but at least in terms of, of starting to find some of those um, pathways, it does look like maybe understanding the background rhythm, maybe this calmodulin-dependent uh, protein 2 kinase. And then one other one that we looked at a little bit that talked about spine retraction, which I thought was interesting in the pyramidal neurons in the mouse hippocampus was this uh, efren A3, efren A4 signaling. And I don't know that it's worth going into that other than to say, it looks like there's at least some biological components of memory versus amnesia that are now starting to be worked out. In addition to that, though, I think um, you two had a study about um, lesions, bilateral lesions in the hippocampus mm -hmm. that looked at mm -hmm. some of the, why we think hippocampus is also a big part of this. Do you want to talk about that study? Yeah, I can take that. So. Um, there's a large, uh, there's a study that was done by uh, that 1957, back in 1957, that looked at, um, by Scoville and Milner, and they looked at a patient who lost the ability to form new memories, and they had bilateral lesions on the hippocampus. So that sparked this, uh, everyone to look at this hippocampal um, 
centered view of what how we're having amnesia, how we form memories. By the way, this HM guy, mm -hmm. pretty well known, and I think there's uh, I think there's a book about him, maybe too. Might be one of the Sachs books. Does that sound familiar to you, Chef? Okay, I, I probably have that wrong. Um, yeah, I bet you're right. <laughs> but I, I don't know if it's one of the Sachs books, but I do know that this HM yeah. guy. There's actually videos out there about him. You can see those on the internet, mm -hmm. um, and it shows him every morning. It's the exact same conversation because his yesterday was however many years ago. And his next script is still based on the autobiographical memory that stopped ac accumulating after the bilateral hippocampi um, oh, insults. Yeah. So Very fascinating. Super fascinating. It is. Um, today's, some of the studies today for today's hypothesis is um, understanding the hippocampus doesn't work in isolation. And so there's other brain regions such as the basolateral amygdala that's important um, that they're discovering in amnesia. And that was found by Alkire, in which he looked at sevoflurane. And so uh, he did a study where he took three groups of rats. He gave one the placebo, which was air, another group that was sevoflurane, another group that had basolateral amygdala lesions. And he gave them sevo as well. And when he looked at the their learned um, procedure went back the rats that had sevoflurane without the lesions could not remember in the lat the rats that had uh basolateral amygdala lesions could could remember really yes and so then he looked at another one that we talked about propofol and so in this one he gave the rats saline which was placebo a group propofol and then a group with the lesions Profile again. The ones with profile could not remember, and the ones with the lesions could. So, that going off that, a lot of studies was that there's something going on in this basolateral amygdala that anesthesia is blocking. So maybe it's two things, not just one. So maybe uh, even though a lot of the stuff I was looking at was about the hippocampus, there might be other aspects of this. Mm -hmm. It might take two parts of it. But I think it is interesting because one of the articles I looked at really said, hey, these all work from different mechanisms. What changes is beta rhythm in the hippocampus and perhaps that's regulated elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I'm not very good at what area regulates another area. Although I think right here it says it's unknown how propofol affects the amygdala dependent emotion memory systems, which modulates consolidation. So perhaps there's something about that. Yeah. Nice note, by the way. Yeah. Uh, tell me about um, ARC, activity-regulated cytoskeletal associated protein. Yeah, so uh, going off of this BLA, the basolateral amygdala dependent mechanism, they started looking more into it. And so they found these cellular genes that were called immediate early genes that had increased protein expression um, that required new M mRNA in response to the learning event. And uh, Ren et al. started calling this activity-regulated cytoskeleton-associated protein, or ARC-associated protein. And so uh, ARC is implicated directly, uh, indirectly altering synaptic function. And that learning-induced 
arc protein expression in the hippocampus is critical for consolidation of inhibitory avoidance. And in the study they did, it was uh, critical for uh, the rats to avoid, um, I forget what they did for the rats. The, the, the swimming mace, the, mm -hmm, the, the water, water swimming yes. um, So, So I want you to take me now. So they, they think that arc is disrupted by um, anesthetics. Mm -hmm. And to make this study more elegant, they then added a GABA um, agonist to counter effect propofol's effect. And what happened? And so when they uh, countered the propofol, uh, the suppression of the ARC protein that propofol was having was no longer being suppressed. So it normalized the function of the gene by mm -hmm. blocking the GABA process. So GABA is involved in that process. Yes. Think. And that goes back to some of the things we've already read, right? That mm -hmm. GABA seems to be at least a player in some mm -hmm. of these. Um, do we want to talk anything uh, more about ARC or do we want to talk about a couple of papers that we read that were kind of interesting? I think we should talk about the that that first case study feud yeah. paper. Okay, let's talk about it. So this was an interesting case report, and it was it involves a 36-year-old female. She has a she had obesity and she underwent a Rowan uh, Y gastric bypass. So she received propofol, lidocaine, and glycopyrrolate. And uh, after awakening, after the surgery, she had no recollection of why she was even in the hospital. She was disoriented to place and was not able to recall her identity. It was so severe to the point where she was even frightened by her five-year boyfriend. And uh, she couldn't recall her date of birth. So it was a pretty severe moment of uh, amnesia in this case where she didn't even recognize her identity. And this is a perfect example of disassociative amnesia where you can't really recall your own identity. And, and more specifically, in this case, autobiographical amnesia, I think, right? Yeah, that okay. fits a very, yeah. She could understand, but she didn't know who she was and everything. And what was really interesting in this case is that her past medical history included disassociative fugue, which was prior, or she was hospitalized for that, seven years before. So with this current case of amnesia, her post-surgical uh, induced amnesia, she was discharged six days later after she had improvement. So this was an interesting study where it had, uh, where propofol had a severe uh, side effect on the patient afterwards where it left her with this amnesia. When we saw this, we started looking for other cases. We found two or three that were reported where there were people that either had retrograde, significant retrograde amnesia, and then a, um, a dissociative fugue or vice versa. I think there were three or four cases out there. Does that sound right? We were able to find one of them and get our hands on the, the report. I think the other thing we saw too was that there was one article that said most people that have had a, like a second episode of any of these things had like a head injury and had an amnesia event in the past. Do you guys remember seeing that in any of the articles? I did see that. It was... It, it kind of made it seem like you're prone to more uh, episodes of amnesia just because you had one before. And, and I wasn't sure if it was saying that, or if it was saying if you've been 
hit on the head hard enough, maybe you'll have these. Or I, I think today we would maybe say, if you were vulnerable enough to have an amnesia associated with getting bonked on the head before, you might be vulnerable through the same pathways. Now we we had, there were a couple of studies, I think the, do you wanna talk about the 12 year old boy with ADHD? Yeah, so this was interesting because this was another example of uh, amnesia that was induced by uh, surgery. So a 12 year old boy with ADHD underwent an endoscopy and had propofol sedation. So after this, uh, after he woke up, he knew he was at the hospital, but he could not recall the reason nor recognize his own family. Now, the most interesting thing here is that it took him six months to get to baseline. That's quite a long time. This isn't the handful of hours Shad's talking about. This is very different than, and also, <laughs> yeah. again, this is autobiographical, right? Which is make this, this which is what makes this stand out. Mm -hmm. uh, what about, um, pregnant women undergoing C-section with um, propofol. Yeah, so this was interesting. So they wanted to see the effects of propofol and midazolam and see if there were any uh, amnesia side effects here. So what they did is that they had a group of 55 pregnant females that were undergoing a C-section. 30 of the 55 were given propofol and 25 were given midazolam. Now, five of them who were five of the 30 who were given propofol were not able to recall the name or the gender of their children, whereas the 25 out of the 25 that were given midazolam had no amnesia, nothing afterwards, no side effect. So another case of... Uh, I, I think uh, that's very interesting. I think that's very interesting. Uh, my experience says that that is dose and time dependent for both those drugs. Propofol, if you look up the half-life of propofol, interestingly, you're gonna find a, this huge range. And it has to do with how long you were actually on the propofol and how much dose you got. So, you know, if they gave something like a dose of 2.5 milligrams of Versed or two milligrams of Versed, midazolam, which is a really common intro dose, most of those patients who are adult patients are going to be able to remember a lot of things. They're going to be able to talk to you during that. And then afterwards, they may not remember even talking to you, but during then, they won't have, say, autobiographical amnesia. You'll be able to, to discuss most things with them. And then, and then if you give somebody propofol, propofol is such a potent sedative hypnotic that during the procedure, if you're trying to talk to somebody, again, dose dependent, who has had propofol, they will snore, they won't talk. And and then you have a certain amount of time that you're going to have to wait until the propofol wears off, if it's a small dose, usually very quickly. And and then I tend to see them come back to a very normal state. So, so I'm intrigued by that study. I saw that in the notes and I was super intrigued by the dose that they had given and then the time that they waited. Do you know what that was by any chance? No. Okay. Um, I think there, there were a handful of other very interesting cases. The, the issue of amnesia, I think, intrigues a lot of people. I think there are other issues that we didn't try and tackle very much during this podcast. I know uh, the question about secondary gain malingering in this is kind of a an interesting topic. I think there was one other paper we looked at with three cases of 
of uh, dissociative fugue where they had actually done functional imaging and they didn't find a consistent pattern in the functional imaging. I think there's very it's very hard to find good data on at least the dissociative fugue part and I think the at least the amnesia part that is associated with um, anesthesia, it, it, it seems like we're making steps in that. In fact, if as we move towards the future, looks like there might be something on the horizon that helps reduce some of the amnesia, the, the retrograde and maybe an antegrade amnesia that we sometimes worry about. And I think there were some cases of antegrade amnesia associated with um, anesthesia, but those were fairly rare, right? It is largely a retrograde amnesia with this occasional um, autobiographical amnesia that looks fugue-like in its nature, and I think that's kind of where we focus this. So tell me about the future. What, what, what do we have to look forward to? So there is a, uh, chem a chemical uh, or drug called, um, I might butcher this, it's nephiracetam. So nephiracetam, N-E-F-I-R-A-C-E-T-A-M. That's my guess at it. So what is uh, nephiracetam? So it's used as a cognitive enhancer, a nootropic of, um, of the racemic class, and it's derived initially from a paramolecule called pyrocetam. Um, these are most structurally similar, similar to anerocetam. Again, I might be butchering these words. <laughs> I apologize to the listeners. And, uh, other people about the way I'm pronouncing these. Uh, but what's very interesting about this is how in a study, they basically combined uh, propofol and nefericetam. And huh. NF. NF. I'm just going to call it NF. Uh, so they, they infused these two. And when uh, when these both were used, they this increased decreased retrograde amnesia and this seemed to be a indirect result from uh, a modulation of some gene transcription and basically it initiates a cascade of events involving a protein synthesis leading to synaptic growth associated with the formation of long-term memory race so this nf um, is basically used uh, in the study to prevent these amnesia, retrograde amnesia. Now, is this a? I see in this the sourcing. This is a supplement, or is the supplement like a supplement to the journal? This this isn't like a, a nutraceutical out there. This is a, a chemical class. Yeah, it, chemical it class. looks like it's in the family of levetiracetam, which is Keppra, the antiepileptic. And is that right? Uh, I did not see that in there. So maybe not. Yeah. What else does the future hold for us? Um, I think that we're finding ways in all these different pathways to um, quantify and make better studies to determine what is causing the amnesia, how can we fix the amnesia, how can we avoid it in these uh, patients that are high at risk. Um, like you said, they've been trying to do some imaging, haven't really found anything. They've been looking at uh, genes of patients to see who's more susceptible, susceptible to this, but um, I think we're just moving forward, uh, getting 
getting better studies and better uh, targets of what to focus the studies on. I thought it was interesting that um, one of the challenges we had was, I think we, I, I spent a fair amount of time in online Mendelian inheritance in man, looking for any references to genes that might be associated with either autobiographical memory loss, dissociative fugue, or amnesia of any sort. Very difficult to find most of the genes that seem to be associated with, with any type of search words along those lines come up with uh, like, I don't know if they would be Hox genes, but genes involved in uh, targeting neuronal cone targeting and development. Uh, so, so not a lot out there yet. And, and even the language of how we describe yes. this feels a little bit bulky. We talked about that to some mm -hmm. extent. So yeah, it feels like, it feels like we're zeroing in on it. At least there's some direction for some of these things. Yeah. It feels, it feels limited though. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've said, I, we talked about this in that, the changing of the names, the change of the classification, the changing of all these different types of amnesias, it makes the research and trying to compile it to get an actual uh, like evidence so much harder. Like how long were we looking at papers where we were saying, oh wait, let's try autobiographical <laughs> memory right. with, you know, let's, right. oh, let's try it with, yeah, we did a lot of searches looking for different terms. And when we used the different terms, we ended up with really different results, right? Mm -hmm. I think uh, the very first time we searched for um, anesthesia-associated amnesia and dissociative fugue, we had a paper pop right up. I think when we looked for that other times, it didn't because I think there was a second case that we found and then a third case that we found, but, but, but they never showed up on the same page. Mm -hmm. We did Google searches, we did uh, PubMed searches, um, we, we searched the recesses of our brains. Nothing seemed to uh, really pop, right? It, it was really a difficult a, a difficult um, search to find what we we're looking for. And I think part of that was the language. I think it doesn't help that dissociative fugue is now under the dissociative identity disorder. We read a, at least one paper from a working group in uh, for the DSM-5 looking at, at how they recommended that be a change because it was still part of some sort of amnesiac um, sort of syndrome. Right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think um, I think I'm going to ask a question to the three of you. We'll start with you, Shad, if you don't mind. Um, we started this off looking for uh, any sort of association between the types of amnesias, right? Quite often when we do a podcast and we can find some sort of example that looks like a psychiatric condition in the in the wild, so to speak. Like if if we talk about you know catatonia in psychiatry, we can usually find something where catatonia happens as a part of a medical condition, right? There's always these overlaps. I'm curious if you felt like there is any overlap in the amnesias after the discussion and after reading the notes. And Chad, I'll throw that to you to start with. And, and by Boy, and let me be more specific with the with like the dissociative fugue type of amnesia and the like the retrograde or various amnesias of surgery. Is there an overlap in mechanism or are the case reports simply random chance? Man, it's so hard for me to interpret that and really give <laughs> a, an answer that that where I can speak authoritatively. It, the brain and the drugs that we use on the brain are so 
um, to me, they're they're interesting. We one of the things that you talked about earlier, and I don't I don't want to digress too much. You said something along the lines of we haven't made a lot of strides in in anesthesia over the last say 30 or 40 years. And I'm paraphrasing what you said. That's not exact. Uh, you are, I think you're hundred percent right in that we haven't really figured out more target receptors. So maybe we're not, we have NMDA, we have GABA, uh, you know, we have uh, alpha two. We really don't have new receptors. We are getting different drugs coming out with some frequency that seem to target them different ways. So we may have a shorter onset of action, or we may have a longer duration or a shorter duration or a increased potency. Drugs like um, remifentanil are very interesting. A lot of providers are using remifentanil to run sedations and they're using it as a single agent. That's an opioid and it gives, it gives the patient sleep. And in a lot of cases, it does give amnesia for that period. Um, so that's a good point. I think that was, yeah, no, go ahead. Sorry, Chad. But we do have new drugs. As I see these drugs come and go, I'm, I'm just old enough now, I think in my practice to see drugs being used with some frequency, uh, you know, a variety of them. I feel like there is a certain amount of overlap in how I see the patients react from the different medicines. And it's, uh, it is uncanny to me that I can almost pick out, when I use ketamine, for instance, on a patient, I can almost always pick the patients who are gonna have ketamine, uh, have a good experience with ketamine versus the other patients who start looking like they're a seizure patient after getting ketamine. Um, the brain is so strange, we might find that there really is overlap between these these fugue states, these dissociative amnestic events, whether they're retrograde or anterograde, we may find out that there is significant overlap because I see overlap in the drugs, I guess is the best answer I can give. That's an interesting answer. Shad, I, I, I hate to say, I, I knew when I was making that comment before it was overly broad and I, I appreciate you bringing it back to earth a little bit. Um, I, let, me, let me ask this question maybe to, to clarify the mm -hmm. different drugs maybe outside of remifentanil which is along the lines of sufentanil and some of the other fentanyls right this sure. is a modification of a molecule that's out there are there truly new medications that come out where you go wow it doesn't matter what the cost is this is clearly that much better not for me I think that so far, all of the, there's a new medic, a medication that I haven't even considered using called, Re, I'm gonna probably mispronounce this, Remimazolam. It's a new benzodiazepine. And uh, I am not, I doubt that I will use that in my practice lifetime because my guess of cost per vial is gonna be enormous. We have, fairly effective ways of sedating people. That earlier when I was talking about the alpha-2 agonist dexmedetomidine, it is now a generic drug. And it's pretty, uh, it, it is a little bit of a game changer and quite a few people are switching over, especially now that we have a, a national ketamine shortage. I ordered dexmedetomidine to try and fill that void and I'm gonna be running dexmedetomidine in the 
near future instead of ketamine until I can get ketamine back. So, so I think it makes sense to me that that you're saying that there are some changes, but I'm also hearing that I might not make changes until the cost changes because the incremental benefit is not that great. And I am also hearing that there are a few exceptions to the Me Too drugs, where, where potentially the Me Too drugs are uh, much like they might be in psychiatry where we have second generation antipsychotic medications that might have, uh, that the neuro ones that might have less weight gain, that might have fewer extra pyramidal side effects and so forth. They're, they're modestly different, but not necessarily enough that I'm going to spend two to $3,000 a month versus $4 a month to make them first line treatment. Yeah, it, it makes no sense for the, for the majority of us practitioners to change with modest benefit how we do things, especially in light of it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter what drugs I use, Medicaid will still only pay me $73 per 15 minutes of IV sedation. So if I'm using a drug that per dose costs me $100, I have a net loss and it's going to be very difficult for me to continue doing business that way. Yeah. It, it, you would maybe consider it if it was clear that the benefit was so much greater. Right. And, and if there were a certain patient population where I was, I was so worried, you know, if I had some type of medication that is clearly beneficial in one type of patient versus another, I may also use it there. So if I were to summarize what I said earlier, there are changes in, in anesthesia I think the evolution of ketamine was one of those dextomedetic, dex, 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 That's the easy way to say Presidex. that. Presidex. Look, yeah. It looks like it might be helpful and it clearly an improvement over uh, the other alpha two uh, mm-hmm. medications. And that may be some of the modifications of things like fentanyl have made those more amenable to use in surgery. So, so it sounds like some of the me twos have, have, a meaningful incremental difference too. Is that yeah. a better statement that there are a couple of game changers and there are a couple of incremental changers? Yeah, and in especially in light of what this podcast, my understanding of what we're trying to go after, which is which is the these amnesia type events. I think that some of the newer anesthetics may show some benefits. So the alpha two agonists. I'm not aware yet of case reports showing amnesia that is uh, either retrograde or long-term anterograde from um, the alpha-2, from, from dexmedetomidine. I'm also not aware of those effects in remifentanil either. So there's a couple, you know, not maybe if you were not specifically targeting uh, GABA-type receptors or maybe we're not using propofol, maybe we can avoid these types of effects. Interesting. Very helpful. Very helpful. I'll throw the same question to you two. Who's up first? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I can provide a better answer than that being, you know, behind the computer third year <laughs> medical student is not out practicing. But yeah, I think, um, like you said, that it's not changing in the receptors and the bottom line is not there and you it's and it's working and you it's these are just case reports that we're finding i think yeah i think more data needs to be out there 
like you said, a, a specific patient population that it's going to hurt. One thing I found the most interesting with what he mentioned as well was the receptors, because even with the, the case reports we found, we found that there's a GABA um, A sub A5 or uh, mm -hmm. there's different receptors. And it would be so interesting if there are more studies to show whether one's more receptive to one medication versus another, or are these receptors specifically associated with amnesia? I mean, there's even a case with uh, NMDA or 5-HT or serotonin receptors and different subtypes of them um, inducing amnesia. So I, I think very well said that the next step should be looking at uh, the receptors and subtypes of them and uh, seeing if that could change the realm of anesthesia. I'll throw my two cents in, even though I'm not sure I have a better comment or even a meaningful one. Um, I, I think I go back to the theta study, right? There's something about changing theta waves that um, might be a biomarker for what is most important in inducing the necessary amnesia. It's possible that there are a lot of different pathways to that, whether that's alpha-2, whether that's a GABA receptor, or whether that's an opiate receptor, a mu receptor, I should say, probably. And so, so I, I, I hope that we have a better pathway to that at some point. And I, I think the overall question, though, is, is there a link between the different types of amnesias that we see in psychiatry and the types of amnesia that we see in other settings? Um, and, and I think the, the one comment I would go back to is that, um, first of all, if it happens primarily with one kind of medication, I can imagine, which I think more often than not uh, GABA agents, right? I can imagine that specific uh, mutations in the GABA receptor would make somebody vulnerable to having this event, right? So, so I think it's possible that somebody who had that receptor uh, mutation type would also maybe have a different vulnerability with um, anesthetics, whatever that vulnerability is. But the second part of that, I, I think my idea that it might be something there that overlaps or helps us tie these conditions together is not necessarily that it would be the same mechanism for each of them, but something that leads to a common final pathway. And I think the reason I suspect that is because a lot of the articles we read seem to allude to the fact that people that have one type of amnesia event seem to be the people that have a second amnesia event, and they aren't always the same type of amnesia event. So, so I think there's probably some sort of common final pathway uh, for amnestic events, and that there's probably a genetic component, maybe environmental component that will uh, come into play over time, and maybe even some of the stuff with um, very rapid movement with memory formation, where the spines are being moved very quickly, or the um, adaptability, the plasticity of the uh, end of the neuron is being changed rapidly. We might find that there's something about that that can be vulnerable to some sort of uh, methylation. And I think we looked at one methylation paper along the way. So, so I think there's something probably there, but I think we're probably a very long ways away from finding it because of the complexity of tying these two things together and because of the infrequency of it, even though um, anterior grade amnesia is common, it, it's so common that it doesn't really help us to study who has some anterior grade amnesia to try and sort out what's going on in these cases with uh, long-term am, uh, amnesia. And I also think the dissociative fugue uh, stuff is kind of difficult to sort out and bring together and, and rule out the uh, secondary gain that might show up in that case and then have a 
quote, pristine population that we can do some sort of um, either neuropathological or neuro um, neuropathophys uh, kind of stuff on that would require death. We don't want that. And maybe imaging, knowing if we have the right tools to see it. So I think we're a long ways away. That's my, that's my long-winded answer. <laughs> so um, take home from the podcast. How about if we go youngest to oldest? Who's first? Oh, gosh. Throw me under the bus. So take away, you know, from the perspective of this, it's not only for the shelf of knowing the different types of amnesia, but having a good sense of what differentiates between each term. And I think the, the DSM-5 does a great job with setting boundaries to not keep us confused with each definition and um, to be aware of this and uh, the side effects of some of these medications. And as most of the podcast podcast listeners are uh, med students and stuff like that, it'd be smart to have a general knowledge of these drugs and the possible side effects that it could have on a patient. So just being aware. I will throw in there that we have a number of people who are residents that listen. And we also have people from other countries that I suspect listen to learn medical uh, information that might be helpful. So we have listeners from all over the globe now. You might not have known that. Yeah. Robert? No, I, I would say takeaway for me is knowing these definitions and knowing how to use them properly and moving forward as we become providers in medicine so that um, for those who are learning medicine, we can all know that we're talking about the same thing and that we can keep our amount of data in the same files by using the same terminology and coming together. And what a great comment. I think one of my biggest weaknesses as a physician is using analogous words rather than the descriptive word that is most often used, right? Somebody who has a, a memory loss might have a dementia, but they might also have an amnestic disorder. And of the type of amnestic disorder they have, it might be episodic, it might be transient global, it might be um, autobiographical and so forth. And having the most specific uh, name helps us all keep straight what we're talking about, right? Because the nuances are meaningful. I think mm -hmm. that's just a great comment. Chad, I'd, I'd like to just, if I may, throw in one comment before you say anything. And that is that uh, th <laughs> there are also oral surgeons that listen to this podcast quite regularly, including Shad. And he's been probably one of the finest, um, uh, critique is not the right word, but feedback is probably a great word. I've had more great feedback from Shad about this podcast than anybody can imagine. He's helped it to become a better podcast and hopefully more meaningful for the students. He's often texted me after he listens to a podcast and said, hey, I, I really liked this comment that that caught me off guard. I didn't know this, or hey, the way you might have mentioned this. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. What do you think? Right, which is his nice way of saying you kind of screwed up. <laughs> so, um, Shad, your comments on the podcast after a meaningful thankful thank you to you. Uh, well, thank you for having me as a guest. I, I, you and I have talked about me being on the podcast for a variety of different reasons. I, I, every time you bring it up, I always think it's a stretch to have me jump in on any sort of uh, psychiatric type of a podcast. But thank you for uh, allowing me the, the opportunity. I think the thing that I noticed um, and the thing that I continue to notice when I listen to your podcast is 
is something that I was thinking about at my desk today. When we are providers, this is this is going to seem uh, I don't know like a kumbaya moment or something, but when we're when we see patients, whether it's in a psychiatric hospital or whether it's in the OR as anesthesiologists, great career choice, by the way, guys. I'm jealous all the time of my anesthesia cohorts. Um, when, when we see those patients in our offices, we have our slice of the pie that we have to take care of. And all of the other things that the patient brings with them to the plate complicate the thing that we have to do. And, and as I, as you and I have sat and talked many, many times, I think about frequently how my patients with severe psychiatric illness, you know, schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder or some, you know, some type of psychosis, I think about how I have to modify my treatment to take care of these patients. And it sounds like, you know, these guys who are with you today, it sounds like they get the idea that the patient is a complex whole you know that that we're always trying to um, try and manage and the more we know about the patient the more we understand the different disease processes and the different uh, the different physical baggage that the patient brings to the plate the better we're going to be able to tackle these sorts of situations so so I th I'm grateful for all of the time that I've been able to listen and grateful for the things that that you guys have uh, been able to teach me you guys today and also you know through the through the years as the podcast has has gone on um i did want to give a shout out thank you for uh, mentioning my dental brethren in the development of anesthesia dental has been huge in the formation of anesthesia <laughs> and uh and early on when dentists were um, developing the use of nitrous oxide. I don't know if you guys came across this, but there's something that they used to do called turn them black and bring them back. And they would use <laughs> nitrous oxide in 100% concentration. And they would essentially make the patient, you know, the hypoxic with uh, nitrous oxide. And that would produce unconsciousness and they would do dental work. And then they would ventilate the patient, try and bring them back. So. You know, that's where we started and now where we are is a totally different place. And and I think it's a really, uh, it's been a good journey for healthcare in general, all of the development that's happened. So I thought you guys would find that fun and I wanted to leave that as a parting gift, I guess. So at first I thought um, th there is a running joke in our family. Um, one or two. <laughs> What <laughs> is to confuse the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist and the other is to confuse the difference between a dentist and oral surgeon and endodontist and a pediatric dentist. Um, so, so when you first started that, when you were talking about your uh, dental brethren, I thought you might be throwing barbs at the... Uh, Dr. Roundy, the endodontist, and Dr. Roundy, the professor at UNLV Dental School at the Pediatric Dentist. So, uh, no, I, no, I am the <laughs> I'm the least intelligent of the of the healthcare professional <laughs> brothers. So, I he who is without sin, let him first cast a stone. <laughs> I, I'm not going to be the one today. <laughs> oh. 
Oh, gosh. Thank you so much, Chad. My take home is that uh, it's great to have somebody, because I, I, I make assumptions based on what I learned 20 years ago, in part what I try to learn based on, on what I read, on what the students give me feedback about based on the rotations they're going to. And reading the literature and commenting on the literature is not the same as practicing the literature. We're better when we understand the literature and we practice, um, but just being a commenter on the literature is is uh, certainly a challenge, and and clearly I, I have limitations in that. So I think that's a, a good take home for me today. The other take home is um, generally we've been more able over the previous podcasts to find some of the neuropathophysiology of some of the items or some of the things that we've been looking at. So the genomic uh, look at schizophrenia in the last podcast that is not yet published. Uh, I think is fascinating. The podcast before that, which was actual neuropathophysiology, I think was very interesting as well. And I felt like this uh, podcast, I was much more stymied in finding really any data. I'm pretty sure we had um, we had the case series of the 55 pregnant women, but in terms of finding like a randomized control trial with patients who have severe retrograde amnesia following uh, anesthesia, that's just not there. Uh, we, we don't have that kind of data here. And so a uh, difficult topic and um, kind of brought me back to earth a little bit because I start thinking that, wow, we're, we're on the verge of solving everything and clearly we are not, right? <laughs> so uh, great, great take home. Gentlemen, thank you all so much. Uh, Shad, Robert, Nick, great podcast, very enjoyable. I think it has a lot of meaning in terms of, in, in terms of amnesia and something that we'll follow up with quite a bit. On that note, team out. Yeah, team out. Team out. Team out. Team out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody.